0: As we put in this section in chapter 2, Matthew specifies certain fulfillments of prophecy. Did you notice in verse 15, he said, This was to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. A few weeks ago we, we camped on this for a moment to see that what Matthew was trying to do was tie together the parts of redemptive history to show that Jesus is brought with him a second exodus, that he was reflecting what God had already done in the past with Israel. He called his son Israel out of Egypt because he loved him, because he called him to belong to himself. And now Jesus, the true Israel, himself was called out of Egypt. And Matthew wants us to recognize the part of the narrative story of the gospel that this is. And then in verse 17, a verse that we actually skipped in our reading this morning because it doesn't pertain directly to the point of this sermon. Matthew said this, So was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, of voices heard in Ramah, Rachel weeping for her children. Matthew was connecting that to King Herod's murder of children in Bethlehem. And Matthew was making the point that long ago... God's people were taken into exile, and Rachel, the most beloved of wives of Jacob, whose name was Israel, Rachel, whose firstborn was Joseph, the one who would go to Egypt ahead of his people, Rachel, figuratively as the mother of Israel, wept for her children when they were exiled away. Herod and his killing of the children reflecting that part of the narrative story of God's gospel redemptive plan. And now verse 23, he says to us, Joseph settled in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Today that third one is the main point of where I want to go today so that we can think about this redemptive plan in our lives now and at this particular time of the year. Because a new year is about to break upon us, and annually it brings about great interest and hope and expectations for new beginnings. We all tend to think in that way, and our culture pushes us in that way to think of the new beginnings of a new year. But at some point, a Christian in maturity has to recognize that the Christian life only begins once. And then it patiently and quietly subtly germinates and grows in the direction of God's redeeming plan and by the power of God's redeeming spirit. Matthew shows us the great subtlety of this gospel plan in that God came into this world as a nobody to ignore. Joseph was a gypsy of sorts, wasn't he? He didn't intend to be. It's not what he set out to become. He wouldn't have claimed himself to be a gypsy, I think, but that's kind of what he became because he was so willing to travel. Matthew in this second chapter shows us Joseph's travels, and those travels, I think, show us the depth of Joseph's faith to trust God for his word to go where God sent him to go. After the wise men had departed, Matthew tells us an angel came to Joseph in a dream and said these words, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And in verse 14, Matthew reports that Joseph dutifully rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. But then notice the parallel event. About a year later or so, in Egypt, the same thing happens again. Herod has died and the angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says almost the same words, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. And in verse 21, Matthew reports that Joseph dutifully rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. I don't think Matthew is playing any literary tricks for us here. It's a simple repetition to make the point that this man, trusting in the word of God to him, was faithful to do what God called him to do, and it caused him to become something of a gypsy. Have you ever asked someone whom you've met and you're trying to get to know in all the small talk of the normal conversation we have, you've asked them the question, so where are you from? And they've responded with the answer, it's complicated. Maybe some of you have that as your answer when people ask that. Maybe you came from a military family or maybe sometimes a pastor's family. Sometimes they're from around about in different sorts of places, and that can be a hard question to answer. Sometimes their answer might be something like Joseph's or Jesus, who would have said something about, My parents began in Nazareth. That's where they became engaged to be married. But then circumstances arose. The the government called for a census, and they had to go to my father's family's hometown, Bethlehem, and that's where I was born, Bethlehem. I spent some time there in Bethlehem, but then other circumstances arose, government-driven, and caused us to move to Egypt where we were for a year or two. And then circumstances arose again, and we moved back to Israel, but this time to A different place from where I was born. We settled in Nazareth. Where am I from? Well, sort of Nazareth by way of Bethlehem and Egypt. And it's a paper trail that Matthew is very eager to document for us because it demonstrates, for the sake of the narrative story of the gospel, just exactly who this Jesus is. But in the eyes of the world, he's a nobody. nobody to ignore. Joseph returned his family to Israel. The story is there before you, and the threat remained somewhat. Herod is now gone, but Herod had left his kingdom to three of his sons. He divided it among them, and Herod was a murderous, evil man, as we've seen before, and the murderous, evil spirit passed along to his son Archelaus, who now reigned in Judea and Matthew knew the nature of this Archelaus and warned in another dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee and went to live in a city called Nazareth. Luke tells us that Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary had begun together. Matthew doesn't tell us that. He tells us they went to live in this city called Nazareth. And Nazareth was a small town. It was a town of maybe 500 or so Nobody's A nobody place and a nobody town. And it was north of Jerusalem in Galilee, in the region of Galilee, up north, far and away from the hub of the cultural life of Israel. It was a town kind of like you might think of cities around Dallas, where maybe you've traveled through Wills Point, maybe, or Glen Rose, or even Ranger, Texas, somewhere sort of out west of here. Little hamlets where the world just passes by and doesn't take much notice. Good folks doing nothing that really matters. That was Nazareth. And there the boy Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. You know, we don't know much, if anything, really about the childhood of Jesus, about, about his years as a boy in Nazareth. We really don't know anything about his youth. Luke, of course, tells us the story of 12-year-old Jesus traveling to Jerusalem with his family for the Passover feast and staying behind as the crowd, on its way back to Nazareth, traveled out of the city a day's travel before his parents realized that Jesus, their 12-year-old, wasn't among the crowd with the cousins and such, and so they returned to Jerusalem. You know the story. They returned there to find him, and there they found him in the temple, talking with the The priests and the scribes, the teachers of the law, talking with the religious people about matters of the temple. A 12-year-old, and they marveled at how much he understood about what they had to say, about what he had to say. Surely he had great questions for them. His parents mildly rebuked him, and he returned with them quietly to Nazareth where he belonged, where he spent his childhood. We don't know a whole lot about his days in Nazareth. What else do we know? Not not much at all. Really nothing, actually. It was quiet days in a quiet town. You know, there actually were other so-called Gospels. I'm putting those in quotes because they really weren't. But so-called Gospels that were written in the ancient world, about the life of Jesus. Not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those were the four that the church eventually recognized as God's word for the church. But there were other accounts that were written about the life of Jesus. Much of it, most of it perhaps, just speculation. And in some of those stories, you see stories about his childhood. It would be little stories about, oh, you know, nine-year-old Jesus playing out in the mud after the rain with his friends and fashioning a, a bird out of some wet clay. But don't you know it happened to be the Sabbath day and someone recognized this boy fashioning a clay bird out of out of the dirt and pointed to him and called him on the Sabbath question. You can't do that kind of work on the Sabbath. And So nine-year-old Jesus looked back at his work of clay and clapped his hands and the bird flew off or maybe 12 year old jesus 11 year old jesus learning carpentry in his father's shop and joseph making a table or a a bench or something for someone cut the board just a little bit too short and now it won't fit and so 11 year old jesus says to him oh dad it's okay it's okay let me fix that and he stretches the board a little bit and now it's okay Those are the sorts of stories that you read in some of the other so-called Gospels about Jesus, speculations about what things might have been like in his childhood. We don't know those things. They're not necessarily true. They're not things that the church puts any stock in. They're not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're simply speculations. You've got to wonder, what was the life of nine-year-old Jesus like in Nazareth for two and a half decades? He lived life under the radar in a town that was under the radar. A nobody ignored by everybody. Why? Well, I think at least one reason is because before he could die for our sins, he had to live for our righteousness. As an adult, Jesus would often tell his disciples, you know, he would do this, tell no one about what I've done here, because my time has not yet come. Or when he would heal someone or work a miracle that would marvel people before him, he would say to them, tell no one about this. Sometimes they would violate that and go and tell anyway. Tell no one about this. My time has not yet come. Because he had the work of righteousness to do on our behalf, and he needed the subtle cover of of obscurity to do it. Because... A righteous person attracts attention. A righteous person draws the eyes of an unrighteous world because their life is so distinct. Sometimes the most important works flourish best under the cover of obscurity. New Year's comes for us as a season of the year. And, and every year, I feel like, we as Americans and, and as American Christians, we begin to put on a big event mentality about New Year's, we begin to assume, well, this year I'm going to do things right. This year I'm going to start all over again, and I'm going to adopt a program or set up a system or follow a plan, and we make a big deal about whatever it is that's going to make things right. We have a big event mentality, and we get caught up in the worldly pomp, and we forget about the subtlety, about the daily ordinary obscurity of simply being a Christian, of simply living in faithfulness in the little things of the day, of simply trusting the Lord for the big and scary things, and of simply resting in Jesus for the past ugly things. It's so subtle, the gospel is, that it's easy for the world to ignore it, and so we sometimes ignore it. But there were no pep rallies for Jesus. There were no big events, no debutantes, no attention-grabbing red carpet walks for him out of Nazareth because, well, as the disciples would say, nothing good comes from Nazareth. What is there to celebrate there? Jesus, rather, would have said, I've come in weakness. I've come in the subtlety of nobodiness in order to save those who know they are weak in order to save those who know they also are, because of the fall, nobodies. So Matthew makes it clear, though, that even as this one came as a nobody, easy to ignore, he was much, much more than that. He was also a Nazarene to redeem. Now, Philip was one of the disciples early on who who came to Jesus, or Jesus called him to follow him. John accounts for it in his gospel account and Philip is intrigued by Jesus and begins to believe and follow him. Philip goes and finds his friend Nathaniel and he says to Nathanael, a faithful Jew, Nathanael, come along, we've found the Messiah. We've found the one about whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the, the carpenter's son, he says to him. And Nathanael knew better. At the time, Last names were not part of the deal. You had a first name, but not a last name. Jesus didn't have, he wasn't named Jesus Smith. He didn't have a last name. He was known by his associations. He was Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the carpenter's son. And Nathaniel knew something about this. And so Nathaniel responded to Philip. He said, what do you mean Nazareth, Philip? Messiah and Nazareth, you can't put those two things together because nothing good comes from Nazareth. It was widely known among the Jews that the Messiah was to come from Bethlehem, from a a suburb just south of Jerusalem, just just outside of the big city, from Bethlehem. In fact, you remember Herod's consultation with the priests and the scribes in the temple. When the wise men came asking suspicious questions about a king born to the Jews, Herod gathered together the religious ones who would know such things and asked them, Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And you remember what they said. They were quick together to agree and quote from Micah. Oh, Bethlehem, that's the place. Bethlehem is the place where this one is to be born. They all knew that he was to come from Bethlehem, not from Galilee, not from the region north of Jerusalem, and certainly not from a place like Nazareth. But Matthew Gives a subtle hint in explaining why Joseph returned to Nazareth. He said this so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, that's that third prophecy that Matthew fulfills in this short section of Scripture. The first one we know came from Hosea, although Matthew doesn't say it. Hosea spoke of of God calling His Son out of Egypt. In Hosea 11, that's where you find that verbatim, right there in Hosea 11, verse 1. And the second one, about Rachel and Ramah and the weeping and the tears after Herod killing the children. Matthew connects that to Jeremiah, and indeed that's where it comes from. Jeremiah makes that connection for Rachel and Israel. But then there's this third one, to fulfill the words of the prophet. Where did this one come from? Do you know? If you know, then you're a pretty good Bible scholar because you don't find it anywhere in the Bible. This one that Matthew points out, that he should be called a Nazarene, just as the prophets had said, this one is not in the Bible. Nathanael and Philip surely would have known if it were there. They would have known, but Nathanael was not impressed that this Messiah, so-called, was coming from Nazareth. What do you mean, Philip? Nazareth? There's nothing good coming from Nazareth. It's not there in the Old Testament. The prophets hadn't said it exactly. So what's the deal with Matthew? Did Matthew get it wrong? Did Matthew miss something? Matthew was a faithful Jew. He knew his scripture as well. He surely knew that this wasn't there. No, not exactly. Matthew didn't quite get it wrong. What he does, rather, is he sums up the prophetic theme of the Messiah, Nazareth being a place of no beauty, no attraction, Nothing to desire in Nazareth. And Matthew, connecting to Isaiah, knew that this one would have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That beauty that Matthew remembers Isaiah referring to that Jesus would not have, that beauty was something attributed to King David in Samuel. When Saul is looking for good men to serve him in his kingdom, someone says to him, Oh, I've, I've seen David, Jesse's son. He's a fine-looking man. The same word is used there. He's a beautiful man. He's a man with, with good looks. He's a man that would draw your attention. Apparently, Jesus didn't even have this. There was nothing worldly about him that should make us interested. Nazareth was a nowhere place with a nowhere face. But this so-called prophecy, he would be called Nazarene, came not just from the theme of nobodiness that Isaiah gave us, but also from Isaiah's wordplay. It's a wordplay on what Isaiah had said here. Isaiah prophesied, you might remember, hundreds of years before Jesus came, During the time when the Jews were exiled to Babylon and Isaiah spoke to the Israelites about hope for the future. He gave them hope in a remnant of God's people that would rise up from Jesse's roots. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots that will bear fruit. A branch, the Hebrew word is nezer. Jesse being the father of David, David the hope of Israel, and Israel was to watch for a branch. Israel was to watch for a Nezer to come from those roots. And then some four centuries before the birth of Jesus, some Israelites, unknown to us, returning from exile in Babylon to settle back in the land of the Israelites, settled in a little town... And looking forward in hope, as the Israelites would, gave it a new name, Branch Town, Nazareth. The prophecy was too veiled and too subtle even for the first disciples to see it, to receive it immediately and to know exactly about this Nazareth idea. Why should the Messiah come from Nazareth? Well, of course he should come from Nazareth. He is Nazareth. Nazareth. And like an expectant New Year's Eve celebrator, they were looking for something else to hope in. And they almost missed the one who would produce the fruit that they desired. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, fear of the Lord, righteousness, equity, meekness, and faithfulness. Jesus is a Nazarene to redeem He is the branch to produce just the fruit that the hopeful people most needed. You know, as soon as you begin the new years here, we anticipate what might be next. We expect what might be done better or what might be done as a result of what was mistakenly done in the past. And we hope for something big and something good. But you have to see, again, the subtlety of the gospel narrative story. Because Christianity is not so much a religious system, though it is that. It is a religious system, but it's not so much a religious system. It's not so much a moral structure, though it includes a moral structure. And it's not so much a great idea, though it definitely is, among the world's great ideas, absolutely the greatest. Rather then those things, it's actually a narrative reality. The gospel is a narrative reality. It's a story in which you live. You are as connected to Isaiah's prophecy as Isaiah was. Only he looked forward to it in the story, and you look back on it in the story. Earlier in his book, Isaiah, looking forward to that day of redemption, Said this, he said, In that day the branch, the Nazareth of the Lord, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. No first century Jew would have expected the pride and honor of Israel to come from a nobody man, from a nowhere place like Nazareth. Like us, they wanted Macy's parades and they wanted bowl games and they wanted fireworks and Times Square balls to drop. And it is to our shame if we want only the same. Just like our calendars that shift from season to season as a new year comes, the Christian life has seasons. But until Jesus returns the big events don't drive the Christian life. It's a a narrative story in which we live. And the beautiful and glorious branch of the Lord has come forth. He has gained for you and produced for you what you can never gain or produce for yourself. So as a new year begins for you, in the day-by-day subtleties of it, trust Him to provide in you all that the Father requires of you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. O Lord, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you've called us to belong to you. Thank you that you, by your great patience in your redemptive work in Jesus, have accomplished the very things that you require for us on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, that as we enter into a new year, that you would enable us to look to you in faith, to trust you yet again afresh, to believe even because of the subtleties of your gospel, that we would trust that you are at work in the daily faithfulness of your means of grace to cause us to grow in Jesus' likeness. We pray in his name. Amen.